whatever. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right, I consent. You consent. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, we can. I bet there's so much better. Like, there's probably so much better shock jock radio in like these states where they don't have that because you can just record people. Uh, I'm just realizing how much we got cheated out of it. Absolutely. I. I mean, I grew up listening to uh, to uh, like for lack of a better term, like shock jocks, like so I'm from Chicago. So in Chicago, there's like this weird parasocial relationship with uh, talk radio hosts, even more so than any other place I've ever lived. And I've lived all over the place, but Chicago, it's like their radio hosts and their weather people. It's like a religion. And so um, I, I, I'm a radio nerd. I'll fully admit that I grew up, I used to cut class in high school to drive around and listen to like talk radio. I I love it. I used to stay up late and listen to Art Bell. Like that, that was my thing. And, uh, you know, carried on with me, went on to go to college specifically for that, for like radio TV production. Um, and then I ended up getting into the field and I worked in radio for like seven or eight years in Chicago. And it is like the most boring, terrible bullshit. And, and it's funny because the those radio personalities that we grow up like oh my god like stern and i, I won't list all the chicago people it's like they're the most boring like pretty, <laughs> like, pretty much losers for the most part wait for really name name a chicago one because i'm sure we have chicago fans here in the, in the audience who are live with us i should shout them out viewers they can see us uh, it's ephemeral right so like yeah. they're with us give us your what was like a, your favorite chicago like host so um I don't know about my favorite. I mean, the ones that are most well-known that people would probably know um, were, were these two guys called Steve Dahl and Gary Meyer. Those are the ones that started the disco demolition in the late 70s. Oh, for real, for real. Those um, are, I love those guys. Heroes. American. Yeah. So if anybody doesn't know, disco demolition was a uh, radio prank, basically, um, uh, formed by The Loop, which is a radio station in Chicago, uh, played rock and roll. This is around with disco. Um, I would say it was maybe petering out a little bit. Disco had been around for a minute or two, um, but it was kind of on the tail end of its first kind of run. And uh, so this radio station uh, came up with a promotion with the Chicago White Sox where you could go to a double header at Comiskey Park. And in between the games, you could bring disco records mm-hmm. and they were going to run them over with um, like pavers and then also blow them up and uh what they didn't account for was that people were getting shit-faced at the game and then way more people showed up than they expected and it turned into an actual full-scale kind of riot on the field they ended up having to cancel the the second game um but that disco demolition is like a huge chicago radio lore um and i ended up working for one of those guys later and it's just like don't meet these people don't meet these if I was dictator of Chicago, I would have a reenactment of disco demolition every year. It just feels like an important right. I mean, this program is called Here Comes the Backlash. I do have an affinity for like reactionaryism a little bit. It was petering out and it was a little oversaturated, I think, at the point. I get where the instinct was because they wanted their rock and roll back. They, people were taking stations. It's kind of like today. It wasn't just like disco's here. Like, if you love it, go do disco. It was like, you must fucking love disco. And yeah. people lost their rock and roll stations. And that's not cool either, you know? Yeah. They just, you know, turned it into a commodity thing and, um, you know, disco sucks t-shirts. And then it almost became its own kind of, uh, 
weird thing. But yeah, that I would say that's like the most well-known Chicago stuff. Let's go sucks, sucks. You know, it just becomes, it's an endless cycle. Uh, it's, you I know, think we talked about that on Twitter. I said like hating disco is pretty lazy at this point. Like um, I'm, I'm not like some, you know, disco stan or something, but like I can get down with disco. The backlash comes, the backlash goes. Uh, Oso Blanco, welcome to Here Comes the Backlash. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. Okay, first of all, everyone, I'm talking to Osa Blanco. That's really awesome. Everyone loves this guy on Twitter. You're just like very, uh, you do a lot of cozy posting. I feel like you're very positive and you emanate great vibes. I made everybody jealous when I told them I was uh, having you on the program. I feel like uh, this is this is really truly an honor. So thank you for being here. Thanks, Pool. Should I just call you Pool or Pool House? Pool House, Pool, Pooly, whatever feels great on you. Names are for other people. Like, I'm not one of these particular, you know. Yeah. Video's on. We can see each other. I, I, told, I told Pool before, no one on Twitter has ever seen me. I was like, don't worry. I will say regardless that you are handsome. Audience, we've got a looker. Again, I've not, I have not struck out once. I've got a looker. I've got a radio professional. I constantly just land these high-skilled High quality guests, um, out of thin air. Like I just literally, I yeah. think, oh, and one day it probably will go horribly wrong. What, what do you do <laughs> with the radio biz when you get a dud? Like, give me some tips. <laughs> when you get a dud? Oh man, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you always get the camera off option. And I think you could just do like the hello and then fake a reason to have the camera off after that. But I mean, okay. Yeah. But okay. Looks wise, I we can deal with, I guess. But what if they're like a personality dud? Oh man, that's rough. Um, yeah, we've run into that a few times. Uh, you basically have to dump out early. You have to fit, you have to kind of make up an excuse to move on. It's terrible. Mm. It's rare, but it happens for sure. It's like usually like athletes. Um, they don't really have a whole lot to say. And even if you feed them, if you try to give them things to talk about, it's, it's rough. You know, that's, that's not their strong suit. Mm -hmm. My instinct for some reason, like, as you were saying that, I guess was just to like, get really drunk and then verbally abuse them. I learned that from Cassandra uh, at Truth and Joyer. She, she told me like she used to do that on dates that didn't go well. And it just suddenly came, came to me that could work too. But yours is a, yours is a little bit more peaceful and uh, amicable, I guess. Uh, resolution. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That, that's that side of me for sure. Oh, so like you are a champion. I want to ask you, like, I guess who is Oso? What should we know? Uh, you're a, a godsend from the radio waves, really. But like, what else should I know? Um, well, that, I, that was a while ago. It's, that was probably like 10 years ago. Or so, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm, uh, <laughs> it's always such a weird question when you try to describe yourself. I feel like I'm an uncomplicated person. Um, yeah. no, man, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot that kind of makes me up, I suppose. Um, you know, I really don't give a whole lot of myself online. Um, just for different reasons. We were talking before the show started. I really value being in a non, like I really do. Um, I currently and have been working in a, um, a sector or a field that's like incredibly libtarded, like even more so than, than some other ones. Um, and it's, it's, you know, for lack of a better explanation, it's public health. So like I work with, uh, people in my County, in my area, um, who deal with like substance use disorders and mental health disorders. Um, you know, and it's just, uh, it, first of all, I'm, 
like the rare male in the field. Like I'm surrounded by, by a lot of women. Um, they tend tend to generally skew libtarded to begin with. Um, and it, you know, especially during COVID, it was just, it was a nightmare. You, it's one of those things where you have to hide your power levels at all times. Um, you really do. Um, so a lot of my time spent at work with like coworkers is just like me nodding and smiling, you know, as someone describes like, uh, you know, something about Trump still, I don't know. There's, they still talk about Trump. So oh, I have to kind of yeah. smile and nod. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I've, uh, I've, I've kind of had a weird life. I've, like I said, I've lived all over the place. Um, I, I, I myself am, am in long-term recovery from substance use. Uh, I was a heroin addict for like 15 years, 15 right. years on and off. Um, and that actually, and we can get into it later because it actually kind of dovetails with some of these other topics, but um I, I lived on the street for a few years in between um, and did did that whole life, which is like, it, it, I'm so far removed from it now that it seems like somebody else's life, uh, mm-hmm. but, but it happened. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of put stuff back together about five or six years ago. I've been good since then. Um, and, and I originally got on Twitter as just a, a way to kind of like have a, a pressure release valve, I guess. Um, and then I, I even got on Twitter and I found like everyone's so fucking serious all the time. So I think that's why I, I, I generally try to skew towards like, you know, trying to make jokes and trying to stay positive. Cause it's just, it's such a slog, man. It's a slog of like friend enemy on there and I can't keep up. Like I can't keep up with like who we're beefing with this week. Um, so I, sometimes I have to make sure, do I like this tweet or is that going to anger? So I don't know. I try, I try to like maintain a middle ground as best I can. That's like, well, it's highly diplomatic. And like, well, first of all, thank you for sharing like uh, that about like your, your life. Like that's really, it's really touching. I made me really, made me really sad because it made me think of like, what I live in San Francisco, right? And like, I, you know, I, I lived in the Tenderloin for a while and there's people that you see, I don't want to like classify the people in the streets, but there's people on the streets that you see that look like they've been on the streets maybe for oh, a minute. And there's people that you see that like, kind of remind you i guess this is really dark but i'm gonna be honest like when you're around constant uh like people on the streets i guess are in poverty you kind of feel like a certain numbness to it right you just start to tune it out and then you'll see somebody who's just like oh my gosh it's like somebody's like kid it's somebody it's like my that could be my high school friend you know what i mean and it like it resets you kind of and you're like whoa what the fuck is going on you're like what are we doing and so it just made me like really sad to think of like that, that could be you you know it broke my heart and makes me so glad that you're like in a you know you're kind of like in a, a long house it sounds like instead of like <laughs> unhoused but still like it's, I, it's yeah. stable, right it's stable and so like i'm, but I'm, I'm housed really i might be in a long house but i'm housed exactly. so exactly. and you know what's funny is that um i've said this to to people on twitter like people i've been mutuals with or friends with or whatever is that like we get along and like pretty much agree with all this stuff. And then I'll see some of the stuff that they say about people who are dealing with substance use and, and, you know, homelessness and stuff like that. And it's just, it's so brutal. Um, you know, and I get it. I get it. I was there. Uh, not everybody is, uh, you know, an angel. It's like, I, I understand. I understand why people get into substance use and I understand why people become homeless and stay homeless. But like when I'll, you know, I'll see like a mutual say something like, you know, we could solve addiction by putting them all against the wall or something. And you read something like that and you're like, good God, man, like 
haha, like that was me like six or seven years ago. Exactly. Like, exactly. Holy shit. <laughs> so that I, might still be like my most libtarded trade is like, all right, let's not just completely shit on uh, people who are dealing with substance use, whether it's like Kensington in Philadelphia, like let's all laugh at the people that look like zombies or the tenderloin or the West side of Chicago. It's like, there's, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of uh, people hurting. And so I don't understand like why we think it's funny. It's like, Oh, we could just knock this out. We just kill everybody. It's like, good God, man. Yeah, no, and it, you're, you're not libtard. Well, it, maybe it's libtarded, but there's got to be like an element of uh, humanity. People can't lose their humanity, right? And so, like, right. it's important. So, like, and keep me in check. I say all kinds of ridiculous shit. I do not mean it all the time. I um, suggested this to Q on an episode. Like, I don't know, people think this is wrong, but I think, what if there was just like a sanctuary for, instead of a city, it was just like a model city sort of, and it was like, I don't know, they, you live there, you only you only get so many drugs a day, you know, it looks like a city, you could do all the same stuff, you just go into apartments or whatever, I guess, I don't know, there could be a countryside for like, the like mentally ill who just don't really like want to be, I think, because there's, I think the drug piece is a huge thing, right, and then there's also a mental illness piece, of course, and they, it's hard to untangle them, I feel like sometimes, but just having it there, and if they want out, obviously, I'm not saying like, they don't leave, obviously if you want to go out you can and like every day at four i know the drugs i was thinking it could be like you get your drugs kind of like methadone clinic style where you just get your drugs each day but every so often we'd have like a special day and it would like rain a little bit of extra drugs onto the city okay. just kind of for fun i don't know is that inhumane is that a terrible solution no I- it's not it's not terrible or inhumane i mean it's um that's sort of the model for safe consumption sites to a certain degree oh. and i'm still torn about how i feel about those and I, I work with a lot of people in harm reduction spheres who have told me that's the way it's going. Like that's the way the wind's blowing is every major city will have multiple safe consumption sites. They'll have trained uh, medics there. They'll have people who um, have Narcan there. But not only that, they're also going to have people that are able to kind of like broker resources for these people if they want them. So it's like if they come in, sure, they got a place where they can like shoot dope. But if they're like ready, that's the day they're ready, right? Like I'm fucking sick of this shit. Like they'll have somebody there who can walk them through the process, maybe going to treatment or, or whatever it is. It's supposed to be like person centered. Not everybody's supposed to go to treatment. So it's it's walking them through whatever it is that you know that they want to do. Um, so, I mean, that's a little, that's, that's like a part of it, but the, uh, the other thing is, and this never gets rarely, if ever gets talked about. And, uh, I think a huge part of people coming out of like a tailspin of like, you know, years of chronic drug abuse and homelessness and stuff like that is that disconnect completely from any kind of community. Um, you know, it, it, beyond just like the, uh, I do what I got to do to stay alive on the street community, which that's not really a community. You know what I mean? That's just like running partners. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you're just completely disconnected. It's a very isolating existence. Um, and you know, the, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pull, I'm going to pull a quick anecdotal thing out, but like, you know, when, when GIs and stuff are coming back from Vietnam, there was a huge, huge portion of them that were addicted to heroin at that point. Cause they'd gone over there, you know, horrible fucking war. We never should have been in. Um, and they're just like in the golden triangle of opiates over there. And so it's like, they all pick up these habits. Um, it was a huge percentage. I wish I had the percentage, but it was like pretty high of GIs coming back. Um, now when they got back, a huge chunk of those people just stopped doing heroin. They got back, they got back to their families. They got back to their jobs, their real lives when they got back here and they just stopped using. And they kind of looked at that as an example of like, okay, well, what's the common denominator? And it's like, well, people got back to a sense of community. You know, they were no longer in some kind of hellish fucked up 
you know, hellscape war situation, you know, any, you can't blame them for wanting to shoot dope, you know, in a rice paddy in Vietnam, but when they come back, they're, they're back in their community. And so if you've been completely disconnected from life, um, you're basically living like an animal brain where it's just, you know, find ways to obtain and use, um, it, it takes a while to get back into that sense of community and it's not always easily offered. Thank you. Uh, I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, damn, this is gonna be the first episode I cry, isn't it? And I was like, not like right now, though. I feel like it's gonna come on at some, <laughs> some other point, probably when we're talking about like Morrissey or something much. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for um, sure. I guess, like, um, I don't know. Do you, yeah, do you have any, yeah, do you have any, I guess, um, thoughts on like any prescriptions, anything that you'd like to, anything you, I guess that we should like consider, like, uh, as posters? I know we're like pretty influential in the information wars. I think you're right about like not losing humanity. That's a super important, like, uh, key piece. And I think also I'll throw in maybe people are just wrong about drugs in general. It's just like, it's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding. Oh, you know what I was going to actually say also is just that it, what you said reminded me, I guess, of like um, COVID and how like you're talking about community and, ice, and the isolation that's being like prescribed and mandated by the states. And like, it's, it hasn't really gone away. There's a severe atomization in society right now that we are, we're in your normal. It's, it is different. And it made me like sad there kind of, I guess that's the, that was the, that part i located it um but like uh like yeah is there any i don't know so give, give us hope also <laughs> is there anything we can what should we do what should we do i don't i mean look i'm i'm a realist i wish i i really wish i could give everybody some like a shot of hope about where things are going as far as you know substance use addiction mental health um covid fucked it it fucked it completely. Um, just, then again, this is anecdotal. This is someone who works in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, the the need um, has has far outpaced the providers. Mm-hmm. So when we did become atomized by COVID and people were shoved indoors for a year at a time, um, these are people who maybe didn't even have any kind of habit before. But it's real easy to pick up a habit when you're shoved into a house and you're, you know, kind of told to hate the person who lives next to you for whatever reason. Um, and we saw the 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 demand for for treatment and for resources and services completely shot up. And um, no pun intended. And when I, um, like, we have like wait lists and stuff for services. Uh, and the wait list used to be like a week for somebody to see, like, to come see me for something. And the wait list now is like four to six weeks. And that's been standard since COVID kind of really started. Um, and I feel like it's just one of those things that's going to take, it's going to take some years to untangle it. Um, and it's just a field that is like, has way more need for providers. Like I, I could hire, if I could, I could hire like five or six people tomorrow. Like that's how many positions I need to fill. Um, but it, it's not, it's, it's kind of, it, for some people it can be kind of a depressing job, right? because they they go to work and the people that they're working with are just, you know, still in the throes of this, you know, fucking living hell. So that's what it is. And sometimes you, you see a lot more failure than success stories. And, um, you know, I've seen dozens of people that I've known in the past couple of years dead from fentanyl, um, kind of stopped counting. And this is the stuff I don't really talk about on there. Um, but the amount of deaths is just, uh, it's obviously epidemic level and uh, there we were kind of just pushing it under the rug a little bit. 
Um, and the only time I really talk about drug addiction anymore is when we see a story about like, you know, oh, Joe Biden's giving crack pipes to whoever. And then it's like, okay, that's not the whole, that's not the whole story. Like they're, they're, they're trying to be pragmatic, right? They're trying to say like, okay, well, people are going to use drugs. Like dare to keep people off drugs never worked. The war on drugs was a failure. Uh, people are going to use. So let's be pragmatic. Can we make sure people are not going to end up in ERs? Can we make sure people are not going to die from, you know, or catch hepatitis from dirty needles or pipes? Like the, the idea is, and like, we don't have to necessarily for, go to straight to like, oh, he, you know, they're trying to keep people addicted. No, and a lot of times they aren't. They're just trying to be pragmatic about usage. Mm-hmm. I I'm going to catch shit for that. I'm going to catch no, no, I think you're right. I think we all say this. Well, three things, I guess. I think you're right because it's like, but it, what it is, I think, is like UBI almost to me where it's like the fundamental idea of it. It's like, yeah, of course, let's get people to arts and leisure time and like just fucking pay people and like people do work still or whatever, but you have this uh, basic income. But the people administering it and the reasons they're rolling it out give me pauses. And I think it's similar to that where I, like, I totally agree with the idea that uh, everything about like, obviously, I, I want to model city of harm reduction. So I'm obviously on board with it. But it's like, do I trust like my mayor, mayor, blood and breed? There and it is. All these people to do this in the right way. And then you think, okay, and then like NGOs and contracts, and there's all these like hands in the pot and these policymakers. And so what you end up with often is Joe Biden crack pipes, I guess, when it's like the intent, like underlying. And it's like, that's so common with so many things, I guess, really it's just getting all this. It's like a Rico. Someone said it today, like it's a Rico. I get it out. It's like, yeah, we need to freaking like citizens. Well, rest. You're right. It's like, we, you know, look, I lived in the city where loyal Lightfoot was mayor, you know, it's like, uh, you can't trust yeah. anything these people do. Like you, you can't, you know, it's like, uh, same thing with COVID, like, you know, I don't, I don't really know what was happening with COVID for the first, you know, year, but I was like immediately distrustful because uh-huh. uh-huh. I don't, I don't trust the news. I worked in the news. I don't trust it. Sure. You know, <laughs> like I don't trust, uh, the government. You know, I just don't like, and that sounds kind of like an entry level, you know, punk rock thing to say, but it's like, no, you're right. Like, yeah, maybe there's some people who have some good ideas about harm reduction, but if it's being pushed by, you know, certain levels of the U S government, it's like, don't fucking trust them. They always have another reason for doing it. I guess also it's funny because of like Joe Biden, it's like, crackhead son it's a little bit kind of ironic there too only because they won't and honestly which i think he should always have been leaning into like a president with a crackhead son is kind of like i know i was a brett easton ellis fan like i get what's going on here like it lean into the decadent kind of like yeah i get it (laughs) i don't know hunter biden is hunter biden is a brett easton ellis character as is donald trump they lean into it but like i mean look like you know JFK was getting shot up with amphetamines like in the White House. Like, wh- why do we purity spiral on the presidents? <laughs> I mean, I don't think any of them haven't been, to be honest. Um, okay, wait. Oh, so, oh, yeah. This is my advice. I don't want to end us. I don't want to be too doom pilled here. I'm going to tell people yeah. they should be. If you want to be better, be like Oso. That's my advice is be like Oso. Are you pill- Are you telling the homies good night? Are you telling them good morning? Are you posting cute animals? Are you being cozy? Are you creating a warm ambiance for people to thrive? Be like Oso and also check in on your Osos. Just make sure you're checking on your Osos. That's my that's my uh, my streetwise advice for the kids. Have you made our corner of the internet a better place today? Exactly. And I try to do that before I become a complete menace. I don't understand it. It's a dark passenger, but it's the demon inside of me, probably, that I just can't seem, you know, to exercise that, uh, that, that itch I can't stop scratching. City was a great place for our 
architects and dilettantes, a nice place for middle lives and crossing guards and on and on. You remember a time when this pool was a great place for waterways and cannonballs, a nice place for astrologists and love dolls and on and on. Sciences, but I actually weirdly gave Oso an assignment. I was like, Oso, I didn't ask. I said, Oso, <laughs> uh, just come prepared with your telling of the uh, Jack Whiteside Parsons story, which um, is it, it rings in the hollows of the like internet and, and conspiracy lore. Uh, very it rings hard. I don't know. That's not a sentence, but you know, it's a big time. It's a big time lore. But I feel like. Oso's here to break it down for us, just because I think a lot of people aren't familiar with it. There's a lot to keep up with. A lot of people are trying to like follow some of these uh, secret histories. So uh, please, I was going to say though, I can't believe that like you were in radio. It's really, I, I mean, it really is pretty lucky that I was just like, please. I mean, I'm not putting pressure on your telling, That's but it's fine, I, man. I was fine with the assignment. I, I knew I was going to be good. Oso, who is Jack slash John Whiteside Parsons? Sure. So um, I think the best way to kind of like describe Jack Parsons and the the kind of work that he was doing with Rocketry, which was like adjacent to, you know, and time spent with L. Ron Hubbard and Aleister Crowley and all these other, you know, people who are involved in stuff. I, I kind of refer to it, not really conspiracy, but like parapolitical. So mm. it, it's, you know, uh, political stuff, but also there was things on this like occultism that was going on with it. And so you can kind of look at the history of like, even like the U S space program has like a very occult starting, um, because of the work that like Jack Parsons was doing with rocketry, um, in California. And the, the whole story is very, um, it can be confusing at times. Cause there's, like I said, uh, I said the pool before this, like, there's a lot of unreliable narration on certain things that happened. Um, you could either go into this thinking that you believe in magic or you don't. I, I'm, I think the jury's still out on some of this stuff, but there's also a lot of weirdness that, that was proven uh, to, to have happened. And so you kind of have to take the whole story in and then say, okay, well, which, which part of this do, you know, do I believe? But, um, you know, I, I won't go into like the whole line by line story, but Jack Parsons, um, you know, trust fund kid, um, in, in Los Angeles back in the uh, 19 teens, um, kind of came from money. His, his mom's side of the family was, was pretty wealthy. And so he ended up inheriting a bunch of this money. Uh, dad left uh, town due to adultery. I think this was back in the day where like you could go to jail for adultery. Um, and the dad like, you know, ran off to, I think back to Boston or something. So, um, so Jack Parsons, by the way, Jack Marvel Whiteside Parsons. Marvel was actually uh, one of his given names, which is hilarious. Um, so Jack was kind of a weird kid, undiagnosed dyslexic. Um, wasn't wasn't really very popular was really into sci-fi so like this is when like the pulps were starting to come out a lot so he was really into science fiction um you know space tales rocketry all that type of stuff like that was his shit um 
when he got to school, he ended up making friends with this uh, kid named Edward Fullman, who was kind of like a kind of like a school bully. And, and Parsons was kind of like, you know, like a nerd. So it was like that classic tale. So it's like uh, Parsons would talk to Edward Fullman about rocketry and, and science fiction and stuff. And, and Fullman would kind of keep him protected from other kids in the school. Um, around this time, too, you actually get some stories of Parsons like um, experimenting with the occult for the first time. Um, he tried to actually invoke the devil in his house in Pasadena, I think when he was uh, a teenager. Um, and it, it worked so well that it freaked him out. Like it scared him straight for like a number of years, but it just goes to show you like he was really into this shit from a very early age, uh, full on invocations and things like that. So in kind of like magic circles, you would call him like an adept. Like that was something that came like naturally to him. Um, but the rocketry thing was was really his uh, main focus. Ends up going off to boarding school. Uh, they throw him out of there for blowing up toilets because uh, he would make like his own fireworks, all kinds of explosions, stuff like that. So he gets thrown out of there. Uh, eventually, when it com- comes time to go to college, the depression had hit. So he really doesn't have a ton of money. So he's kind of in and out of colleges in the L.A. area. Um, and he eventually takes a job um, working for uh, a powder company. I think it was called Hercules Powder Company, which made like blasting cap powder. So he is kind of like honing his skills while getting paid for it. I mean, this guy was just completely into this type of stuff. Um eventually kind of gets into some circles around Caltech, uh, where there was some rocketry work being done. Um, he makes some friends there, including, uh, a couple of different professors. He somehow gets connected to Werner Braun Braun around this time. Um, who's the Nazi, like the, and not the conscientious objector, good German, like the dyed in the wool, you know, Nazi. Uh, and they started correspondence, like talking about rocketry and, and, you know, their interest in it. And, uh, Werner Braun was pretty, pretty, uh, um, interested in talking to the kid, you know, it's like this young guy who's into rocketry and stuff. Really quick. When he was talking to Werner Von Braun, was that, was he, uh, was Werner Von Braun in Nazi Germany then? Or had he, yeah, this was there? like, uh, I want to say this was like early to mid thirties. So this is before like, uh, you know, the full rise of the third Reich, but yes, okay. was in Germany at the time. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Parsons kind of makes friends with more of these folks who are working around in and around Caltech. Um, they all have similar ideas about rocketry. They're all really into science fiction. And I think that's a really important thing to remember is like Parsons is like very much a time and place guy. Like you got the kind of like the burgeoning sci-fi field uh, at the same time, um, all these advances in technology are happening and he's not the smartest guy. Like his friends who are working in rocketry, those are the ones who are on like PhD tracks and stuff. And Parsons is much more of like, like he's like the real American story. Like he was a dreamer and he kind of, uh, you know, pulled himself up through some of these situations. Uh, and through the work that he's doing with like these PhD students, um, they apply for funding. Um, and the reason they get this funding is because Parsons has some really almost like uh, flashes of uh, inspiration. And and this is why I think some of this stuff, when he talks about magic, like, okay, there's some weird stuff happens. So one day he was watching a guy, um, a roofer, apply hot asphalt to a roof. And for some reason he got a flash of... Um, like Greek mythology. He was really into Greek mythology too. Mythology, sci-fi, all that stuff. Um, and he he got a flash of like hearing about like Greek fire as a kid, like mm-hmm. the uh, you know, the the weapon. And he for some reason gets this flash and thinks like, okay, 
uh, rocketry currently is mostly like powder based and it's really dangerous. Uh, what if we made kind of a combination uh, solid and liquid fuel? And so he has this inspiration and it ends up kind of working. Um, the, the asphalt thing is kind of weird to me too, because if you think about asphalt, it's like roads. Um, I, I'm also, listen, I, I might go on tangents too, cause I'm kind of weird, but like there is like a whole history of like a cult history of transportation system in the U S if you look at like who was creating the highways and the roads and asphalt around the same time, it's very mm -hmm. weird that he thought of asphalt when he was doing this stuff. Um, so he ends up getting like funding, um, to start what was called the Gausset rocket Gausset rocket research group, um, which was out of Caltech. I think the Guggenheim club, um, was who was kind of funny. And that's what eventually became the JPL. So that's like the, the kind of like abridged version of how he gets to where he is. And that's just like the rocketry part. The other part is he's like living a double life because he is very much uh, a magician. And I mean like magic with the K. Um, he kind of gets into magic in the early thirties. Um, he is very familiar with Aleister Crowley. I don't really have any strong opinions on Aleister Crowley either way. I mean, he's like the most well-known, you know, magician or whatever, but um, really kind of inconsequential and not as interesting as some of the other characters in this story. Um, but Crowley was, uh, you know, started Thelema um, and the OTO. So OTO is the uh, Ordus, uh, I always forget this. Ordo Templis. Orientis. Yes, Ordo yes. Templi Orientis, yeah. Um, and there was a lodge started in Pasadena. It was called the Agape Lodge. And uh, through correspondence with Crowley, um, he takes a shine to this guy Parsons. And he realizes like, okay, he kind of, he's kind of an adept. Like he knows what he's talking about. Um, you know, let's have him become a part of this lodge that's in Pasadena. So while Parsons is doing all of this rocketry work, he's got this double life as like a guy who's doing Gnostic masses and doing, you know, sex magic in these houses out in Pasadena. Um, and it's, it's really kind of crazy how well it parallels um, with some of the uh, advances that he's making while he's doing this. Um, so that, that's kind of how he gets into the magic portion of things. Um, and you can stop me at any time. I, I, once I get going on this stuff, I, I really, I really go. Um, he so the guys he starts this Gausset rocket group with, um, they also called them the Suicide Squad. So they were doing work on uh, the camp college campus and like blowing shit up. Uh, at one point, they sent a steel door through a wall into a classroom, and so the college was like, "Okay, you're you're gonna fucking blow the college up. Like you got to move out somewhere." So send them out to the desert. So they sent these group of guys out to the desert. Um, I think the Arroyo Seco. Um, area in the desert in California, which by the way, was right next to Devil's Gate Dam. And you'll start to see some of these uh, mystical toponymies, like the names of things come up in this story a lot. So they're out doing this work in the Devil's Gate Dam, constantly making um, you know, improvements on the, the rocketry and what they're trying to do. And the thing that's crazy is that uh, back in that time, rocketry, even the term rocket was still like really frowned on. I thought that was like science fiction, like Buck Rogers shit um, and not something that would be of really used to, to the military at large. Um, so th their plan while working on this stuff was like, we're going to the moon. Like they obviously saw the military application of this stuff, but their whole thing was like, let's aim a little bit bigger. Um, U.S. military eventually sees that the work they're doing um, and they give them an influx of cash. Um, 
specifically to work on rocket engines, like for small aircraft. So they wanted to basically find a type of rocketry they could attach to plane wings where they could um, launch off aircraft carriers. So they wanted to shorten the amount of space needed to launch a plane. And through the work that this group did, it worked. They got some money. They got some funding from the military. And this is eventually what became the JPL, which was the um, Jet Propulsion Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's the long and short version of how the JPL came, you know, came to be in its existence. music in my head I'm like what's gonna go underneath Oso's amazing story I'm like eat your heart out fucking NPR you suck like we're gonna take your ass over um I'm sorry I went on the whole tangent mentally as well as well as enjoying the story which um I've heard many I've heard many variations I guess or so, somewhat I guess over time but like you're uh, setting up these threads very well so I guess just maybe I'll recapitulate here for a second and I, I love you you're ready to proceed like uh Oso's setting up this tale of a man and a really American success story from the streets of LA, which I love. I loved hearing about that. For some reason, I was just in Los Angeles and like, it is a really uh, historic city. There's a, a lot of uh, history in the, especially the downtown area. I can picture, can picture young uh, Jack running around. Jack Marvel, I forgot about that middle name, which is really wild. Uh, a lot of elements as you're telling the story made me feel like uh, this person's like kind of a, I'm just say time traveler. I don't think that's really the right word, but I'm going to call it a time traveler. It's like a time, a time traveler. We'll just say that, I guess. I, Sure. Not in the standard way that maybe people think, but somehow he's a time traveler. Uh, anyway, so you're starting, and really in the way that you're telling the story is very expert because it seems that he almost uh, is manifesting the mm-hmm. next phase of each thing that you tell uh, was kind of pre- precipitated by like sort of his explorations and pursuits, which is very fascinating, whether it be in the field of uh, sciences or in the field of magic, which really are all stemming from this kind of like creative vision that he had as a, as a kid. It's really, really fascinating. Um, and so he manifests, I guess, his way over to like, you know, JPL. It's like post-war era, I guess. But also, by the way, like boyhood friends with Werner von Braun like well and and the other thing is too is that he um he eventually moves into a house in Pasadena um that he actually he names the parsonage and it becomes basically known for being like a magic house so he would invite over artists and writers um you know bohemians and they would do sex magic in the house and um the type of stuff you could see the neighbors complain about like pregnant women jumping through flaming hoops. Um, there was shit moving on its own uh, in the house, voices, not 
knocking, like all kinds of, you know, classic uh, manifestation stuff. But this was happening on a normal, you know, uh, suburban street in Pasadena. Um, and he was living in there at the time uh, with his first wife, Helen. And she was totally into it. Like she was very much uh, into the Thelema. She was into the OTO. Um, and he, for a long time, was able to kind of successfully have this double life. Um, and eventually, you know, another character comes in, which uh, is is L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he, to me, L. Ron Hubbard is like a really, really fascinating person. Um, I think he, uh, he gets some well-deserved shit for being a complete and total con man but he was he was also very very interesting and he was like very crucial part of the story um Mm. some of the stuff that jack was doing magically um didn't really take off until hubbard got into it and you can almost look at it as he was like another point in the trinity triangle of this thing because uh once they got together and started doing work um doing magic work um, a lot of really crazy shit started to happen. And um, Hubbard at the time, I think it was like after World War II, because he was in the military. So he got drummed out of the military. And then he was like, he was living in LA as like a swami. Like he was trying to be like a guru type person in LA. Mm-hmm. And like that didn't work. And so he eventually like takes a room in Parson's house. And Parson Parsons immediately like takes to him. And I feel like a lot of people did because um Hubbard was like a very enigmatic guy. Um he he was very, very smart. Um he could talk to you. He, you know, and and as Parsons said, and Parsons ended up writing a writing a letter to Alistair Crowley talking about Hubbard and saying like he knows his shit, like he's an adept. And uh, you know, Hubbard Hubbard would tell stories about like, you know, when he was a pilot, he would see his guardian angel f- sitting on the wing while he was flying. He would tell these stories and people would like eat the shit up. Exactly. And so um, they kind of entered into like a magic pack. They start doing magic together, mm-hmm. um, which eventually gets to, um, you know, the Babylon working. I'm sure if you have questions about that, the, the Babylon working is like the most fascinating part of the whole thing. I think it's the, it's the apex, really, of this uh, tra- this rocketry, this rocket trajectory of his life. Really, I just will say I will contribute to the fact that Elrod Hubbard is interesting. I think I, I forget which with the going clear, beyond clear. I forget what the book was that came out a while back. I kind of liked him. It was supposed to be critical of him. Definitely, I guess an abuser. I guess he physically, I think, beat his wife. Was a drunk, like many great men have done. Unfortunately, some total t- includes some negative parts. Sometimes, unfortunately, people uh, maybe Scientology didn't turn out super great, but I don't think it was actually as bad when he was running it as it became like later on. Uh, it did have its own military force or whatever, but still, sure. that's a lot of the really crazy shit I think happened after the government started using Scientology, in my opinion, as their own one of their many operations uh, that they uh, run. But I think um, it's funny. There's a book he called it's like not dianetics but it's like be it's like it's behind the scenes of dianetics it's like it's full rationale i found it in a bookstore a long time ago it's actually a really cool copy of it. i'll post it maybe a pic in the show notes because it's like uh his whole like quest for scientology basically it's like it's hokey at, at points but it's also like uh i think it would surprise people if they read the text because it's very like well uh rationed i guess he just kind of like is really interested in different synthesizing these religions and you can i guess quibble why he was doing that and for what uh aims i guess but it was really um i know it, it was interesting it's a different perspective that i think people have of him i'm gonna say that um scientology and kind of the work that he did 
can almost be looked as indistinguishable from magic because a lot of that is is will right a lot of that is will-based stuff and i mean that's the core tenet of Thelema, which is do it that will it's all about will um and he knew that going into it and uh i mean the man manifested a complete religion you know almost out of nothing um so say what you will about him as a person you know it is kind of oppressive that he was able to you know conjure that whole cloth Agreed. And I think, and also people like laugh about the Xenu stuff. It's basically true. Okay. Like maybe the <laughs> terminology is a little bit funky. It's a little, everything's a little maybe filtered through his brain, but I'm just going to put this out there. Those little demons are out there, people. We, we need to be <laughs> careful. Um, uh, oh, so, so we're like, okay, we're building this, this story with uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Alistair Crowley and Jack Marvel Whiteside Parsons. What are they going to do with their newfound like powers? So, um, so what's interesting is, uh, and again, really the telling of the Babylon working gets confusing with time frames and stuff like that. So this was probably in the the um, late 40s. Trinity happens, the Trinity test happens in summer of 1945. Um, the Babylon working um, Jack and uh, Hubbard started doing in 1946. And then Oddly enough, you look at 1947, um, that's when like the Roswell crash and stuff happened. So all of this stuff is weirdly tied together in those few years there. Um, but the Babylon working, um, original, the, the, the main reason it started is because of the kind of like libertine sex policies they had at uh, Parsons' house. So it was like very much a free love house and nobody was attached. Parsons had a wife. Um, uh I'm sorry, he had a partner. At this point, his wife had left him and he was actually shacking up with her 18-year-old sister um, named Sarah. And uh, as soon as Hubbard got there, uh, she took Hubbard as a sex partner. Now, this is happening under Pars- Parsons. is basically getting cucked in his own house. Um, <laughs> but, because, <laughs> but because he's... Because he's this, you know, free love, no attachment guy, he has to basically sit there and take it. Um but he's still, you know, his wife has left him for somebody else a couple of years earlier. His new partner's, you know, basically sleeping with Hubbard nonstop. So he feels like he does not have a partner at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been looking at doing these types of rituals for a while. They've been doing some of them, but the Babylon working, um, it, it's it should be called workings because it's it's a it's a series of uh, rituals that they did over the course of a couple of years, um, and they're kind of broken down differently. Like the first one, um, which they did was basically and stay with me. Some of this magic stuff can get really confusing. They the idea was to do this uh, ritual that would um, pluck an elemental um out of existence and to basically create a new partner for parsons who would eventually birth like a moon child and um hubbard is actually out there with him while they're doing it. and hubbard's kind of like the scryer or scribe mm-hmm. um he's writing down a lot of these uh messages and and things that are coming to him mm-hmm. and the thing that they say is she's going to come in the form of a redhead uh, with green eyes. That was like the big part of it. That's what's going to come. So they go on the desert a few days in a row. They're doing these uh, rituals and they come back. And uh, one night they're at the parsonage and somebody knocks on the door. And uh, it's this uh, woman, Helen, who uh, was a redhead with green eyes. She was an artist uh, and she had come out there from New York. And uh, Parsons basically like realized like, oh, it worked. And so he invited her into the house where she stayed and became like his sex partner. So that was the first, that was the first kind of um, uh, part of the Babylon workings. And she later ended up 
a total lunatic. She was in like Kenneth Anger movies. Uh, she really did kind of take the role of uh, Babylon, who is the the elemental they were talking about. Didn't Philip K. Dick have like a, a character? I feel like there was a great redhead girl with green eyes that came from his fiction into real life. He, he it comes had- up a lot. And, and, and Hubbard had red hair and green eyes too. So uh, that yeah. stuff pops up. It's that like I'm I'm telling you, it's the Hibernian, the Irish race is the real. Uh they're the real. Everyone talks about the Jews. No, it's the Irish. I'm telling you, people, look it up. You can't, they they blocked it off on Google. You'll never find anything. Uh because uh, the Irish run Google. I don't really know if actually that's true, but it is funny. A lot of Irish presidents, I'm just saying. Anyway, oh, so that's a complete tangent. Please, um, please tell me like, yeah, what happens with this woman though? I guess they didn't have like these modern, you know, conventions of uh of, of matchmaking, I guess. So they just had to resort to the elements and they found one um so marjorie cameron was her name and um basically was was parsons like partner until when he died in 1952 so she actually stuck around um she would leave at various times she actually did get pregnant um so that whole that whole idea of she was going to birth a moon child for the antichrist or whatever uh didn't actually happen she ended up having an abortion but um you can almost look at the first part of the babylon working as something that was actually successful because mm-hmm. the stuff that was coming to them out there kind of took kind of came true um and that was that was the first part and and where where hubbard is still linked to stuff is like Around this time, Hubbard starts to do some of this real con man bullshit that he's known for uh, more and more over time. So uh, Parsons was pretty wealthy because of the technology he had sold to the military and JPL. He was worth all these patents. He was worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hubbard around this time uh, basically took him on a confidence scheme. Uh, he pitched the idea to Parsons that he was going to go out to the East Coast and pick up uh, these like, uh, these like yachts, like he was going to take these yachts from the East coast, sail them down through the Panama canal around to the West coast and then resell them for more money. So he said he needed Parsons to like stake him, you know, to go and, and, and buy these yachts or whatever. And it turns out that, uh, he was full of shit and he went out to the East coast with, uh, Parsons, former partner, and they absconded with the money and they uh, bought the yachts, but they took the yachts out to sea. So Parsons is bummed out. He's cocked again. Um, and he, he writes to Crowley and Crowley basically told him, like, I told you, like, that guy was full of shit. Like, you should have known better. And so Parsons is like, all right, fuck this. He flies to I think he flies to Miami and starts to do <laughs> he starts to do a ritual which was like the ritual of Mars, like the God of war um, and does this whole, whole uh, magical ritual as he's completing it. And this is from two different sources as he's completing it, you know, uh, Hubbard's out at sea maritime law. No one can get him. Um, like a squall hits him and it damages to the, the damages, the, the yacht so much that they have to end up coming back to the shore of Florida where Parsons is there and then Parsons, you know, has the police there, um, is able to, you know, uh, get the yacht back. And then um, Hubbard kind of talked him into, you know, not, uh, you know, throwing him in jail. He gave him a little bit of the money back. And because Parsons was really like a pretty forgiving guy, he was like, you know, that's, you know, it is what it is. And went back. And uh, th- this, while this was happening, though, um, Parsons like went out to the desert by himself. So before he had Hubbard with him, who was kind of like the scribe of the, the, uh, 
things that were being beamed into his head by Babylon or whatever, uh, Parsons goes out by himself. And while he's out there doing these kind of ecstatic rituals and like Enochian magic and all kinds of confusing magical stuff, um, he gets basically dictated to him a book and it's called Liber 49. And it's this really intense kind of proclamation of, you know, the new age of the antichrist. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty dark stuff. It's very, it's very like, um, it's almost like libertarian in some of the way it's written. Um, it, it really is like it, you, you can draw some parallels between some of the, the magical writing they were doing and like Ayn Rand and some people. It was very much like a libertarian era. I thought that from Aleister Crowley before, actually, too, where he's like, uh, I know people think he's a lib. I'm like, yeah, but he's a libertarian, <laughs> actually. Very he, much libertarian. Funny. Uh, that's really interesting. So he wrote, we will not be linking to this dark sided book in the show notes, unfortunately. Go find it. Don't, I'll go. send it to y'all. <laughs> uh, okay. So he's revealed the Antichrist is he's now manifested, which I will just say all this stuff like my perspective on maybe like rituals and magic is like ultimately the most powerful thing is your ability to believe things and so i think yeah if people enough people believe something and they believe it well enough they believe it purely and truly enough crazy things can happen like the world exists people like it didn't it, it could be nothing there's stuff here crazy things happen all the time we're all, i'm talking to you over a computer right now it's magic so like stop your little like oh magic is not real everyone like have a little bit of open mind i'm not talking about you oh so i mean the listener let's use listener yeah but i think uh i'll reiterate that this sequence of events of like the atomic blast which i think people are uh, starting to understand is kind of like a strange and significant uh, cosmic event the following uh, this ritual this invocation of babylon which in the book of revelations is uh, prophesies it's a there's a the, she's the consort of the devil but it's the consort of the antichrist essentially the or the mother i guess kind of the antichrist or, or both i don't know it's it's gross yeah, she's not it, she's not that cool the name is kind of cool. Mystery Babel. <laughs> kind of an awesome name. And it's I, import, it's I important to note too that the three kind of main characters in the story. So like Crowley, Hubbard, Parsons, independently each dubbed themselves the Antichrist at a certain point. Like this was kind of like the move for them, you know? Mm -hmm. And they 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 looked and it, like I said, it's a it's a confluence of events. It's like this atomic age. Uh, you know, atomic marvels and uh, technology increasing and uh, mixed with this kind of magic. And that's why I say like, you know, things like the Trinity test, sometimes these really, what we know as scientific things can be indistinguishable from magic. Mm. Um, splitting mm -hmm. an atom, like that can be indistinguishable for magic. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we just live in such a secularized, secularized society now that we look at everything very scientifically. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of that stuff, you know, well, who's to say it's not magical? Who is exactly? And there's an eschatological element to this kind of obsession with evoking the end, bringing about the end of the world, trying to resolve history. It's a current in many ideologies, really, almost all of them, really. There's like a death drive almost, which is also, though, I would say these nefarious type people that like Alistair Crowley that we characterize as, oh, he characterizes himself as like the Antichrist, right? They want you to think they're very evil, which makes me a little distrustful about how powerful they actually are but anyway it's a separate topic they definitely have this they, this obsession with kind of looking evil but i think they have this argument they're kind of doing good because they want to bring about the final judgment like the return of like messiah or the arrival of messiah whatever like it's a very weird uh kind of ideology and it's kind of deranged and it underpins most of like i think global politics nowadays to be honest with you it's super annoying but like i don't think the connections between yeah like uh 
uh, what Parsons and like the military industrial complex can be understated. It's very close, uh, very close ties there. It makes you head and wonder because he's working with the people who are going to go to put us, if, whether you believe that they we went to the moon or not, put us through the operation of going to the moon, right? But, and it's, it's, I always think it's important to note, like, as cool as some of this stuff sounds like this magical stuff and I, like these are very imperfect people like mm-hmm. you know um alistair crowley uh drug addict you know chronic drug addict for most of his life uh was a spook at a certain point in time like and then you look at parsons also uh i wouldn't go as far to call him a drug addict but he was a very uh active drug user uh of all different kinds uh everything from you know like weed to uh morphine um and then obviously hubbard has his own hubbard's got if you if you really read up on him he's got some weird like psychosexual repression going on and like he uh obviously like partook in a bunch of stuff at the parsonage but when he goes on and creates like dianetics and scientology all that type of sexual stuff is completely repressed and i think um there's people i think like his son or his son-in-law was trying to say like oh no he he there was sexual stuff when he was like going into writing the tenets of scientology and then everyone else is like not really like there there's all kinds of like rampant sex abuse in scientology um but i think that's because there is like a real big repression in it mm-hmm. um and, and so yeah hubbard had to work out his own sexual weirdness uh before he could write you know create whole cloth this religion um and and the thing i always remember too is like you know, if you know about Scientology, it's like, you know, auditing and e-meters and things like that. If you know what an e-meter is, it's basically two tin cans with wires strapped to it. You're supposed to grab it. Then you get questioned by an auditor. Famously, that did it didn't work on him. Like the guy who created this stuff, auditing didn't work on him and e-meters. The only way it worked is if you combined it with hypnotism. And that was really the only way that it worked for him. So, uh, all three of these guys are really interesting, but they're they're also full of shit to a lot of extent. Sure, sure, yeah. It, it reminds me when you're when you're describing Scientology, like no offense, Mormons, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of Mormonism, and it reminds me of how just really like, all these different religions do take on the characteristics of their prophet or founder, right? Like it's they're a brand in a lot of ways and an extension of that that person as much as it is whatever they ultimately proclaim maybe to um, to believe. You know, it's it's a, it's a combination of both. So it's yeah. really fascinating. I don't know. I think. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. There did John Parsons become like the king of hell and the world <laughs> and rule for a thousand years? Did the work Babylon was he? Did he take the consort of Babylon? Did it all work out for him? And he end? had a very he had a very sad ending. Um, so the third Babylon working, which isn't really as talked about as much as the first two, um, just consisted of some more Enochian magic and some more um, uh, proclamations about, you know, being the Antichrist and things like that. So like Enochian and uh, there's some Kabbalistic stuff in it, uh, ancient Egyptian. Um, it really was kind of, uh, yeah, created by different parts that Crowley kind of picked out of this and ultimately Freemasonry, but he he kind of like cut out the Freemasonry part of uh, the OTO when he kind of took it over. Yeah, this, there's a current that kind of in the background of all of this. And it's all kind of weird. And also eschatological. They're all focused on demons and invoking spirits and elements and, and bringing about bad vibes, to be honest. Like, they're never like, oh, let's bring in the age of, like, harmony and peace. Let's not throw Monterey Pops. It's always like, let's do Altamont forever. That's, like, kind of their focus. It's kind of bad vibes. But Have you ever known anybody that, like, practices magic? 
not like explicitly well i knew some goth like weird people like that um so i'm not like i'm not like into any like initiatory magic stuff i guess i just some internet people who were like chaos magic adjacent uh which i'm familiar with from like the like the illuminatus trilogy like uh, and robert and wilson like i got kind of into that stuff a lot and uh to the band the klf that like i'm obsessed with and so like that was which uh, is like one big ritual exactly and it's like uh that performance ritual it's all it's interesting so i find these uh these things fascinating because of that like i don't think these uh systems really would even i don't think they would benefit me to be honest i think they don't really benefit people in this day and age because they are from a different time maybe some people could be susceptible and it would be beneficial i don't know i think people need to kind of figure out their own shit about i've i've known a couple of people um one guy i know pretty well who um was into magic magic with a k whenever i say magic it's magic with a k um who was like an initiate uh came from a freemason family um and i'll say this uh he believed it and the stuff that he would tell me about the things that he had seen and the things that he was able to i guess converse with um freaked me out you know and and he said he said something to me that really stuck with me because he also was dealing with all kinds of like chronic alcoholism and just these, this horrible things that were happening to him. And I asked him, I was like, is this shit worth it? And he goes, obviously not. Like he truly believed that like, there's a, there's a bill that comes due when you mess around with that stuff. And that's scientific. It's like equal and opposite reaction. Like you can't, you you can't invoke things and not have it come back on you at some point. And it's, uh, it's kind of sad talking to him about it. I mean, Crowley, I think, dies uh, ultimately alone. I think penniless had a painter kind of recently passing a RAP. Uh, like, they don't seem to pan out the way you would think, unless they time traveled someplace. That is also yep. a possibility. <laughs> uh, what happened to John Parsons? So, he, um, around the time, like, while this is all going on, right? Like, he's still living pretty well because he's got these patents. He's still making money from the military. Um, but at the same time, he's also being like tracked by the feds. So, the feds have kind of like been watching him for a while. So, they had all kinds of files on his house. Um, he had like all manner of like Marxists and communists living at his house. So, the red squads were on him at the time because that was around the time of McCarthyism. Um, so, you know, and you can, you can go back and see the files the feds had on him, they kind of start like harmless like oh he's got a wacky kind of sex thing going on there and then over time you know they kind of paint him as like public enemy mm-hmm. um now he kind of bounces around from place to place he does he does eventually get kind of bounced out of his own operation at jpl because of uh some of the occult connections uh he gets a job at hughes aircraft so howard hughes uh <laughs> aircraft company um which again weird weird libertarian people back then like you know mm-hmm. howard hughes the ultimate example of that um um, and uh, so Parsons work in a very short time because he eventually uh, takes home uh, some files. And it was files of like his own work. So it's like some blueprints and some other stuff. And I think a, a secretary at the time uh, called the feds. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of uh, military contracts and other things like that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Hughes fired him. Um, and, and it just kind of became a downward spiral from there to the point mm-hmm. where he was pumping gas a couple of years later. So if you were like living in California in 1950, 1951, you could go to a gas station and Jack Parsons would be pumping your gas. Um, while he was doing that, he was still building uh, pyrotechnics for Hollywood um, because he was still the pyrotechnics guy. Uh, he had uh, like a little lab out in his garage. 
Uh, and then in 1952, um, the saddest ending possible, he actually blew himself up. Um, he was creating uh, some pyrotechnics for a movie and they, the whole situation is pretty sus. Like uh, it looks like it could be an accident, but everyone around him at the time said there's no way, no way it was an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, supposedly he was messing around with fulminated mercury, um, which uh, reacted to another chemical he was working with. He actually, when this garage blew up, it, it, um, it blew like half of his face off. He ended up living for like about 40 minutes uh, oh. after uh, <laughs> the explosion went off. Um, and then, you know, was pronounced dead before they could really get him any kind of medical help. Um, so yeah, by 1952, the, his whole story is over. Hey boy, take me off the radar. People said we'd never go far. Look at you, so take me away from here. Turbo boost me into your stratosphere. Looking fine, got you in my sight. I surrender, won't put up a fight. You're my darling, I adore you. I'll stand by you, always be true. Space Um, so from the time that he starts at Babylon working in 46, you know, it's six years and he's gone. Six years, 66 days. Yep. Just, I don't know if that <laughs> really feels right, but that is quite the trajectory. It, quite the story. Oh, first of all, I just want to pause and say like that is a legend. That was a legend. It was a tale. It was a tale. It was a story. It was a myth, but it was also true. Like everything you said is a, a fact and it's um, pretty fucking crazy. Uh, it's a crazy story. These connections are wild to me. Um, I don't know. What are your, like, what do you do? You have, what do you extrapolate, I guess, from this? What are your takeaways from the, the story and life of John Marvel Whiteside Parsons? You know, I think he's kind of like a tragic character, to be honest, because I think, um, I, I think that he, like I said at the beginning, I think he, he was just like, without sounding cliche, he was just like a dreamer. Like it was a guy that, you know, had some natural ability, didn't have as much as people around him, but, uh, had enough of a forward thinking persona that he could see what was coming. Um, and, uh, the magic thing, like, I can't, I can't fault people for getting wrapped up in that. Like, again, that was a time and place thing. He's out in, I think like 1930s and forties LA specifically, there's something about that time period that's, um, very interesting to me. It's very attractive to me. Um, you know, it's obviously, uh, you know, San Francisco is the capital, you know, quote unquote capital of California during that time, but LA was coming up. Mm -hmm. So there was all kinds of, you know, um, uh, dreamers and schemers and, and all kinds of stuff going on in LA at the time. And it was just a a really cool place. And he was a a person of that era, you know, that that's what he was. Yeah. And he's (laughs) he's been, he's been kind of like written out of history. I mean, if you look at the three characters, right, like I said, Crowley, Hubbard and Parsons, you know, Crowley ended up being pretty inconsequential. Like he obviously has like a rep as being, you know, the magic guy and and whatever. Uh, Hubbard starts this religion, um, that wants to go and do the things that he did. But I mean, Parsons, we're, we're not in space 
if we did go to space, we're not in space without Parsons' story. Oh, right, right. I mean, yes, and definitely regardless. I mean, I think we went to some kind. I of didn't space. want to go that rabbit hole. Know, but right, if we did go to space, there's an entire industrial, uh, entire complex, an entire uh, regime that's powered by the making of the things that he invented. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of wars and bloodshed. So it's Mars was invoked like, properly, I suppose. Wow. Um, you told the story. So a really great way to maybe I did see it differently actually in this telling um you made I now start to think that like Parsons is kind of like and maybe all three of them are like more of like a cutout like I thought about this as like about Hubbard I guess maybe maybe to an extent early but now seeing them in tandem and like you you are right like they are they're influential but inconsequential all in their own rights I think they could have all been easily probably replaced if somebody else could have played those roles right there could have been another actor in any of those parts history would be different sure but I think the through lines would be kind of the same. And so, uh, I don't know, it's interesting. Like, John, you, you told me that he wasn't that, like, uh, not that he wasn't bright, but he was not necessarily a really, a quote, quote, rocket science level. He wasn't right? like PhD track, like Molina and some of his friends were, you know, and maybe that was down to circumstance. Maybe that was down to, uh, you know, sometimes people, geniuses don't always uh, end up on that track, you know? Um, and then he followed what he was interested in. I feel, and I'm not saying he's like a fraud or doesn't know it, but it makes me think of, I don't know, Zuckerberg, like all these, uh, Elon Musk, all these people who I think are mischaracterized as CEOs. I think they're more like representatives or, or go-betweens. They're money movers, essentially, or managers. Um, they don't- they're autistic people. They're autistic thinking people <laughs> who run, running deep state operations that are called corporations. Uh, th- there's a lot of potential there, I guess, for uh, a compromise, I guess, if he does like have- communist house then then the hugh acker were looking into him so these feds are looking at him like those types of people tend to end up compromised because they can be easily yeah. compromised by whatever like you know any any side so it's interesting um to me into what yeah to what extent like who runs these operations it kind of makes because i think a lot of people's conspiracies end or their tracings of these secret histories end maybe with alistair crowley and be like he's the ultimate evil but i i who's alistair crowley's boss you know that's my always my question and i think well, wh- one of the one of the things that's really interesting to me too is um, like, if you look at like the history of Scientology, um, Scientology has a really funny explanation for Jack Parsons. And this is in some of the history of Scientology. Um, Hubbard claims, this is what he told people that he was sent into the parsonage by the government as a rescue op to get uh to, to get uh Parsons <laughs> underage girlfriend out of there it was like a rescue and so Scientology looks at their history as it was a heroic thing that L. Ron Hubbard did was mm-hmm. to take the hit in that house mm-hmm. and get that girl out of there which is amazing um so the Scientology completely runs as fast as they can away from any kind of occult uh connection even though it was very clearly there Mm-hmm. And they're, I mean, what they're, what they're talking about is by that. It's not a Western occultism, but they have an occult system. They believe in like a hidden process to so like the world that they've like kind of figured out. So I mean, I get it. I get it. I guess why they do it. They're, <laughs> that's really funny. I do think L. Ron Hubbard could have been sent there as a government agent. I don't, I kind of question this um, rescue operation uh, story. That's really funny. I don't know. Um I guess so. We should switch gears. I, well, actually, do you have any other final thoughts on on this story? I think it was really fascinating. I, I guess one thing I'll say is like when I think about space force or like things going on today, people can look into Michael Aquino. He he freaks me out. I don't love it, but he wrote like the you know, psychological operations for the, for the military. It was involved in uh, also a, cult- a pedophile, also a public pedophile. pedophile. 
terrifying. The Presidio, like the Presidio sex scandal undermines satanic panic narratives. It's a fucking up, fucked up story. May Russell died covering it. Everybody like satanic panic was real, by the way. It, it is. Yeah, it was, it was. I I agree. And then, that's a whole. Maybe I we, phrase that weird. I phrase that weird. Uh, this the satanic part of the panic was real. There is absolutely, there's absolutely hysterical elements and there's absolutely satanic elements to, uh, to most of those cases. I don't think there's any of them that there isn't some kind of question mark in my mind, I guess, about, I guess I don't know all of them, but. I mean, uh, if, uh, I don't, I'm sure you've read this, but if, if anyone listening has not read Program to Kill by Dave McGowan, uh, go pick it up. Um, that will completely change your mind about whether or not the satanic panic was uh, a trumped up media thing or actually happened. Uh, mm-hmm. cause in a lot of cases that absolutely happened, mm-hmm. uh, it absolutely happens the way you think it did. Mm-hmm. And these, uh, like pedophilic, uh, global networks, like when you start to read that shit in that book it is so thorough and documented how many times, uh, people in positions of power have been caught in crazy shit like this and i think that's very much adjacent to these i mean to me the pedophilia the like satanism or whatever the occultism those become ways and they're all real but they also become tools of like whatever this operation is that kind of runs all this stuff and so i think that they uh they become trade craft almost in this weird way i guess i don't know it seems hokey because it is it's rock and roll it's theater almost in this weird way it's like a show but it's also like it's Based on true story, okay. <laughs> like I guess yeah. what I'm saying, I probably sound completely schizo, but uh, <laughs> it'll send you it'll send you down some some dark rabbit holes. And I, I spent a couple of years going down them, and you don't know what to believe at the end of it. Um, like we've talked about like downer before. I didn't even talk about downer on here before, but like mm-hmm. once you get into like that little subsection of the parapolitical, you really don't know what to think. Because now you're reading things from people that may not actually exist. And it might be, you know, uh, a combination of a few different people. And then plus, like, you really get into some, like, you you meet some real unsavory characters in some of these areas. You know, Michael Hoffman and some of these people, it's like, all right, well... You know, but but it's it's out there and, and it's 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 fascinating, you know, and, and I definitely went down that hole for a couple of years. You you mentioned mystical toponymy, which is like kind of this unpacking of uh, places and names and, and, and meanings behind things that many people find arbitrary or whatever, but it, 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 there's a science to it. Or it's at least be a hobby. You can start to really get into that um, and that can make people people can go crazy doing that too you know a little bit it'll, it'll drive it has driven people crazy exactly and so it's like always pursue you know push the limits of sanity always that's my advice but just to the edge you know just on the event horizon don't go down the black hole it's a very and if you don't think you can manage it you know never go full schizo never go full schizo I got some tweets from one user, Oso Blanco, on Twitter. So Oso Blanco with a zero. We'll cover that in like the shopkeeping and whatnot. But like, uh, Oso, first of all, okay, this one I really loved. It was like a quote tweet I think that you had posted. Um, I just found these. I was fond of these and I pulled them for the program. This wasn't a quote tweet, but it was an older tweet. I think a photograph. You said once a year uh, or so you buy a nice root beer as a tree. So you're a root beer bro, which is really exciting. <laughs> Um, <laughs> do you know what that you know what that tweet is that tweet that tweets about getting old um 
and that that like specifically like it, that that came from like real life it, not not like once a year i actually truly go buy a root beer but it's like you know i'm at the age i like cut out sugar and shit like i only drink like water soda water and like i remember going out to dinner um with the girl I was seeing at the time. And I'm like, Oh, I should order. So like, I should order a root beer. And like, I thought to myself, like, what a nice treat. And then I was like, I am fucking old, man. Like <laughs> I used to, I used to bang dope. And now I'm like, <laughs> now I'm thinking of like, what a nice a treat cherry, a scoop of ice cream, maybe. <laughs> but you know what the thing is? I'm cool with it. Like it, I, I'm cool with that. You're not old. You're a geezer. Being a geezer is for anybody of any age. I say lean into it. I love, so I kind of got back into soda this year, which is not, good i don't know what happened but my uh my my partner my producer was saying that he's he's really into root beer and our our, uh, our nephew's really into root beer they, they call themselves root beer bros and i was okay. like, so i tweet and i was like damn and i'm not like i like root beer but i'm just I'm not in the root beer bros it's a very limited club and i saw that tweet it's like damn i was in the root beer bros i was like maybe he can get me in finally <laughs> you know it's like i'm i'm cool and confident with where i'm at in my life and uh i can have a root beer as a treat if i want you can. I I like a tab soft drink personally. They're uh, full of aspartame, but uh, it hits the spot too. Um, no one's going to know what that is. It's, they, it's back. Tab is back. The tab is back? Every 10 or 12 years, I bring tab back. It's happening. Crack a tab. Soap operas are back, and I associate tab soft drink with sitting on the couch with my grandma like watching a soap opera. On what TV. did you watch? What soap operas did you watch? Uh, for ABC. So like One Life to Live, huge One Life to Live fan, uh, shout out Landview, RIP, uh, uh, All My Children, a little bit of General Hospital, but not as All right, well. So I'm not a soap opera guy, but one that I used to try and watch when I was up was Passions. Mm. <laughs> I forgot about Passions. So yeah, that was like when I was older, but yeah, <laughs> Passions. My, uh, shout out Lady Gay, we're a huge Passions fan. Y'all out there, if you if you're not up on passions, go look, go watch it. Watch clips on YouTube. Hands down, one of the most bad shit shows I've ever seen. It's kind of down. It's like magical realism, right? It's fucking what's really going on. There's an old witch and she's like got a a Timmy and he's a little homunculus, I guess, that she brought to life or whatever. There was like a, there was demonic possession. That was on days two. There was uh, spirits. There's, uh, there's a lot of witchcraft and um, some strange. Yeah, very dark stuff, guys. Be careful really? if you watch yeah. Passions. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning Passions. I do. I appreciate that. Um, I want to. I want to ask you. Okay, this is a really great tweet about because you're a notorious Morrissey fan. I guess yeah. it's pretty well known. Uh, telling my friends it's spiritually feminine of them to ask me how many Morrissey shirts I have. Uh, I can ask. Right. You to feel spiritually feminine enough. I, I feel masculine and feminine enough actually to confidently say how many how many fucking Morrissey shirts do you have. So. Uh, that that again was from real life. Uh, I I got rid of like all my band shirts like a, a few years ago. Um, every few years, like I decided to l- try to live like Spartan and like get rid of like all my clothes and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, you know, just recently, like in the past couple of years, like I'll, I follow a bunch of like Morrissey bootleg accounts like on Instagram. <laughs> so every time I see one, I'm like, fuck it, you know, order it. And then I realized as I was kind of like you know, they were coming in like every couple of weeks or something. I'm like, this is like, I love the man, but like, this is like a little out of hand. You know what I mean? And then of course you get the question, like, how many of those do you have? And I'm like, don't worry about it. Like I I have enough, you know, like, look, I'm I'm wearing one right now, like on this interview. Uh, So yeah, it's, you know, that's, that's just to make myself feel better. 
about about spending a bunch of money on bootlegs it's totally it's totally legit i support it i i wore my graphic tee to this evening in honor of a, a fellow graphic tee fan uh yes, they live yeah they live, sure i don't i don't i like you uh purge of graphic tees every so often because you, yeah. you, you have to otherwise you'll end up with five hundred thousand graphic tees uh that is a they live shirt right it is yeah that's right yeah it's a they live shirt it is from the notorious uh they, they live in videodrome uh might be the same year i don't know like 82 great year for everything and great year for cinema great movie important important you know i i watched that recently and it, it reminded me of the time a time on twitter some some like uh anime like right-wing account tried telling me that that movie was about the jews <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does involve the, the the media, but I don't see what the connection would be. To be honest, it doesn't really make it doesn't land with me. I, I don't get it. Um, like, I, and I try to imagine. Like, I've said this in a. I'm not. I'm in like maybe like one group chat, but I've said this before. It's like, can imagine going like not even going a day without trying to find a way to talk about the juice online. <laughs> it's it's a little bit crazy, um, and. <laughs> that's a whole other rabbit hole i should probably uh stop i don't have to i don't have to call my networking twice in one year or month or week <laughs> um oh so wait okay one more i've got one more of these uh i was asking about maddie maddie healy actually let's talk about that for a second like maddie healy uh you had a really good tweet it <laughs> I'm not even going to read the whole thing other than these rock stars can no longer exist because basically like what yeah. the, his name is Maddie, right? I feel weird calling yeah. him. Oh man. Maddie. But Maddie Healy kind of problematic, I guess, or whatever. What's the deal? No, he's not. He's not. That's what fucks me up. He, <laughs> he went on like the come town Two or whatever. Whatever. Podcast, <laughs> and like they, they, he made like a, an, like a Chinese voice and then like Adam Friedland made like a, a racy joke and he laughed like that, that is so, that is like such a low bar for like shitty rock star behavior. Like I, I seriously, and I said this in a tweet, I had just, I've just finished reading hammer of the gods, which by the way, if no one's read that you should, um, it is a perfect snapshot of like the class of rock stars we used to have. So it follows uh, Led Zeppelin. There's a few Led Zeppelin books, but that one's great. And, uh, the stuff that they used to do, which by the way, was commonplace, not only commonplace accepted, uh, would get, would get them arrested these days. Forget being, you know, uh, read on Twitter. Like, uh, and it just made me think like, I couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine trying to be a rock star in current year. Like you couldn't do shit. Like you couldn't do anything. You remember Power Bottom, like this group that was around, yeah. they were canceled and it was like an anonymous like post. It was so crazy and I hated them. They fucking sucked. No offense, Power Bottom's out there in the audience, but like it was probably creepy, but it was like to think about what you allude to here in maybe uh, Led Zeppelin era, things that even through like the 90s, like Marilyn Manson, I remember like uh, some crazy stories from those books. Like, I don't know, like- I had friends who out. were in bands when I was younger who like weren't weren't big bands but like moderately big like would go on warp tour and shit like that this, this is like early to mid 2000s they were still getting into shit back then but honestly and listen women i love you i love you so much but me too completely kind of cratered that type of existence mm-hmm. and not saying some of it wasn't warranted but the it's no longer looked at as like boyish shenanigans you know it's like it's like uh uh everything is like some kind of like spiritual rape and uh it can't do it anymore 
now i will go as far as to say like they've gotten so crazy the the kids these days i'm an old man i'll yell at these kids have made it so it's kind of like uh retroactively like something that could seem as an ordinary sexual encounter with a person that was fully consenting can retroactively become the consent can be withdrawn and the story can now be characterized in a different way and it sounds like oh like no like believe women like Sure, I I guess, but that's also why you have like uh, investigations and you have like kind of like a, you kind of validate. You can't just go off of things, especially I will say, and I'm not talking about like a woman at McDonald's whose employer is grabbing her. That's is different. This is a rock and roll scene where you have people who have uh, egos and you have people who are kind of trying to get, get places for clout. Anything in the entertainment industry should have been thrown out of the window. It's not for us to consider. Like it really did tarnish real sexual harassment and I think real sexual assault that happens because like, it's like I couldn't. I couldn't imagine, like, I, I haven't gone through any of that shit because I'm, I'm, I'm a good dude. No, I'm just joking. I haven't gone through that, but I couldn't imagine, like, having someone come out of the woodwork from, like, eight years ago mm-hmm. and be like, you know, oh, so I really didn't say yes completely. And then having to, like, defend myself. Like, first of all, I don't remember anything I did. Like, secondly, what do I look like getting on the internet trying to defend myself for something like that? Like, you almost have to just withdraw from it completely. It, exactly. Or yeah, or go like, um, well, Ariel Payne kind of is not, he didn't get accused of it, I guess, but like it, it, you have to either, you can't really do it actually. When it's something like that, I feel like you can uh, kind of own it if you're just accused of maybe Maddie Healy level uh, or above J6 level, I guess, like a crimes. But when it is a sexual crime, there is no real uh, coming back from that. And, and there, and maybe there shouldn't be, but you can't just, if it's real, but you can't just go off of these like anonymous blog posts. It's, in, it's insane. And when that started happening, I was like, Oh, well this undermines due process and, and undermines some real like important principles that underpin our framework of civilization. And I know it's cool to not like, care about that. I want to burn it all down, but like, trust me, you, you don't. I will say Maddie <laughs> Healy has handled it good so far. I, I'm talking like, I know the guy, I don't really, I kind of know who he is i haven't seen him apologize like i haven't seen him do like a mealy mouth hat in hand routine apology which good for him man fuck those people no he should go on red scare actually that's what he should do just to piss them off more <laughs> i think i think find the 1979 because i'm like like that that's Death from above 1979 uh, smashing pumpkins 1979 we're going even older although i do Hell yeah love a D- uh, dfa 79 um oh so i feel like i could i could talk to you all night we've been talking for a minute i feel like wait i have one more i gotta go because you are such a music guy we'll, we'll come back you can maybe do a, a music uh, conversation next time i, I got if, to like but like uh oh my gosh i've my notes got a little crazy oh you want to ask me greaser guys hell yeah are you greaser guys hell yeah or hell no is greasy the look for summer fall what's up with greasers uh give us uh, any other kind of yeah i guess uh fashion <laughs> slash, uh, vibe text okay. for summer 23 so one of the <laughs> grab the greaser guy so one of the, one of the things i do just i guess to pass time and, and kind of amuse myself is collect weirdos online so like i I will say this i don't have a tiktok account like that i use but i have a tiktok like uh creeper account and tiktok if you if you i don't know if you're on it or not is uh amazing for schizos amazing i'll have to send you these links there's a guy i follow who thinks that the government's beaming a microwave uh into his skull um there's another guy who is uh who's on meth, I think, 
and he's squatting in a Lake Tahoe house. Uh, I've got, I've collected so many cool schizos, but um, a lot of correlation, I will say between the government targeting people and them being on meth. I think it's an operation that we should be looking into taking more seriously. A lot of just, gang talking and people on meth. It's crazy. What are they doing? <laughs> but to that end, I stumbled on that guy, that guy from my post, his name's Frosty the Greaser. And he's a, he's a, he's a young dude who's on uh, YouTube and it's like halfway a bit, but halfway not a bit. Sure. Like he he clearly embraces like the 1950s greaser aesthetic um, lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. But like he tries to bring it into like his everyday life. And the, the one that the video that made me laugh so much was like a greaser's way of dealing with hate. And it was him going through like negative comments on his YouTube videos. And I was like, how would a greaser approach that? So I thought like greaser is like a very, um, I don't know. It's like a, it's a, it's a underrated look. Um, not for me, I would never do it, but like, if we still have like skinheads and like these other cool subcultures, like some greasers, man. A greaser, a, a teddy, maybe even teddy boy. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I think you can pull off the. I think you should try the greaser look for maybe fall. I I, I see it a little bit. I don't know. Like, okay. All right. Um, Fair I think, enough. Show that show that greaser how to pull some greaser clout. <laughs> show him what's up. This is how you get them to click like and subscribe, like they did in the fifties. <laughs> By the way, that was like my most retweeted uh, tweet ever. I think. It's like the one I put the least effort into. I'm like, I'm just going to screen grab this guy four times. That is how (laughs) it goes. Oh, that's how it goes. Um, This has been such a blast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, like, that was, that was an incredible walk through it. A dark time and place. I learned things. I I think everyone learned things. I I feel many things actually, honestly, I feel like I know you. Uh, I feel um, so glad that you joined me. I guess I'll say, I feel very grateful that you're here. I feel grateful that you are Oso and you're here and you're doing well. And I wish you to continue to do well. And I like, just thank you for opening up because it's like important to hear people's stories like that. And to give people perspective that uh, everybody didn't just like fall out of a fucking tree one day onto Twitter sphere and start screaming the gay people were born with birth defects. We have a history. We have a place that got us there. And um, some of us have really rough lives and rough roads and still maintain like a really optimistic and positive disposition of so and you do that and so i really just appreciate you for for all that it was long-winded but i wanted to express all of that to you thank Thank you thank you for having me and uh i'm not gonna ever show my face on twitter you're the only one gets to see it so if i if i come back uh you know it's just it's just me and you and be nice to people be nice to each other Uh, it sounds lame but really that's like a that's like a a form of being radical these days it's so true and i will not i will never dox i will say if if there's a court reporter out there or a court illustrator <laughs> or a police illustrator, you can describe me you can describe me to works, actually like i've always i've always people psychic how do you do like a police sketch like how do you know from it's, some- a, it's called an identikit they used to have like kits so they would have um like uh pre-existing sizes of nose and they would show you and you'd pick like which one out of the group uh did it look most like mm-hmm. I don't know. I think a psychic had to land on Ted because that was so realistic with the, like, the hood and the sun. How would they know that's what he was wearing if it wasn't like a, a flash, an impression? Um, oh, so where can people find you on Twitter? Oh, yeah. or- o- o- so Blanco, the last uh, O is a zero. Um, I don't check DMs, but yeah, friend me. 